0: In the early 18th century, explorers discovered gold and diamonds in Brazil. The discovery of gold led to a huge influx of people from other parts of the country, but also from Portugal, people who were looking for new opportunities to make money and become rich. So many people were leaving Portugal in search of Brazilian gold that the Portuguese emperor created laws and special licenses in order to control the amount of travel. But by the end of the century, all the gold had been mined, and there was nothing left. There was a major economic crisis in the country, and people were left looking for another major source of income to take the place of the gold. Eventually, a few decades later, it was coffee that became Brazil's main product, so much so that coffee was known as black gold. For the next century, our entire economy centered around coffee. But in order to get there, there had to be a shift in mentality regarding what could be defined as treasure. In the passage that AJ just read, we find a story that illustrates well what conflicting definitions of treasure looks like. This is a well-known episode, commonly known as the story of the rich young ruler. Rich, because as we see in verse 22, it says that he had great possessions. Wealth in Jewish society was considered a great blessing. Surely, if this man was so wealthy, it was because God had blessed him. To have many possessions was considered a sign that God approved of the person and made his business prosper and increase even more. Young, because he is referred to in the text, as a neoniskos, which in Greek usually refers to a young man who hasn't completely reached social adulthood. So he would have been around 20 to 40 years old. But Luke also calls him a ruler, which means that he was very influential in society despite his young age. Most likely, it was because of his wealth that people looked up to him, came to him for help, and respected him. But beyond that, This was a man who was very devout. He did his best to keep all the commandments and probably contributed to the needs of widows and orphans in the community, just as the Torah required of all righteous Jews. He was probably the kind of person that anyone would think, this man has it all. He's young, he's rich, he's a leader, he's a good person. And yet, this rich, influential man approaches Jesus, a wandering poor teacher with no credentials, and asks him probably the most important question in his life. The fact that such a high status important person would humble himself to the point of asking religious advice of an itinerant preacher, not recognized by great Jewish authorities, says a lot about the sincerity of his request. Here was an honest man genuinely seeking to know the truth, sincerely wanting to do his best to follow God. What did the young man ask? In verse 16, we read that he comes up to Jesus and asks, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? To this, Jesus answers, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus' point in asking this question is simple. He wants the young man to stop and rethink what he was asking. His question implies that there is something good that he can do in order to earn a place in heaven. But Jesus' answer makes him rethink that. With his answer, Jesus shows him that the good that opens the way to the kingdom of God is not a good thing, a good deed, or a good action, but a good person. There is only one who is good, Jesus says. If he is serious about entering the kingdom of God, the first thing he needs to realize is that it is not something he can do on his own. It is not based on his own merits, regardless of how good he is, how many good things he does, or how many good people he helps. The first thing he needs to realize is that to enter the kingdom of God, he must first turn to God, the only one who is truly good. But it's interesting that contrary to what we would expect, Jesus doesn't go on to talk about salvation by faith. Instead, it almost seems like Jesus is contradicting salvation by faith when he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now this the young man was an expert on. He was a sincere Jew. He knew all about God's commandments and what he should or should not do. So he asks Jesus, which commandments do I need to keep? Maybe there was an important one that he had overlooked or forgotten about. And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that these commandments that Jesus mentions are all connected to ethical behavior and the way we treat other people. Yes, the kingdom of heaven does have moral and ethical standards. God is a moral God, and because of that, he does have high standards for his followers. What kind of testimony would we be giving to other people if we said we were followers of God, but lived immoral lives, disregarding the needs of people around us, and caring only for ourselves? But there's a further point to notice here. The fact that Jesus mentions these specific commandments related to how we treat other people, demonstrates a point made elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew. God desires mercy, not sacrifices. What this means is that if we focus only on what we should or should not do, what is right and what is wrong, we're completely missing the point. I'm sure that all of us, like the rich young ruler, are pretty good at not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery. And while all that's fine and good, when the Bible says that God desires mercy, not sacrifices, it's emphasizing the fact that where our heart is when we are doing all of these good things matters a lot. Are we obeying just to obey? Just because it is required of us? Or are we obeying because we love God and we love our neighbor as ourself? Learning to follow God's commandments out of love, both love for God and love for others, is one of the most important aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In reply to Jesus' challenge to keep the commandments, the young man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Even though he did his best to follow all the commandments, and again, was probably a genuinely nice, good person who did his fair share uh, to help society, he still felt that something was missing. He got the answer to his question, and the conversation could have ended right there. But deep in his heart, he still knew that something was missing. As Leon Morris writes, despite his misconception about his standing as a keeper of commandments, he was clearly conscious that something was missing. Without being able to put it into words, he knew that his spiritual makeup was defective, and he was looking to Jesus to show him how to put it right. And so Jesus answers in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Here Jesus puts him face to face with his real problem. Jesus' words, if you would be perfect, don't point to absolute moral perfection or sinlessness, which is usually what we associate with the word. This statement is easily misunderstood, as if Jesus were saying, that while he certainly is good, he will be considered perfect if he does this one supreme good thing, selling all of his possessions. But what Jesus is talking about when he mentions perfection is actually wholeness, completeness. Jesus is asking him if he wants to be whole. Several people in the Bible are called perfect, even though the Bible also includes stories of serious moral failures and sins they committed but they are called perfect because they loved God and followed him with their whole hearts. Despite their shortcomings, their first priority was to serve God. David was one such example. Even though the Bible reports many serious sins that David had committed, he was wholeheartedly devoted to God. In 1 Kings 11.4, we find a comparison between Solomon and his father, David. For When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. In Hebrew, the word for wholly devoted is perfect. David was perfect because his heart was dedicated to God in its entirety. Solomon, on the other hand, was divided, divided between his many wives, divided between other gods, and was not as fully committed to God as his father was. But David, despite his many sins, was wholly devoted to God. This is what Jesus is offering to the rich young ruler. He can fill that which was lacking in his heart if he would only follow God with all his heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, Jesus says in Matthew 22:37. But this commandment, the young man was not keeping. Jesus points exactly to what the other God in the young man's life was, his many possessions. If you would be perfect, Jesus says, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus knew that all his possessions were getting in the way of wholeheartedly following him. He needed to rethink his definition of true treasure and put aside that which stood between him and wholehearted submission to Jesus. It's not that riches and possessions in general are always an impediment to being a true follower of Jesus. Different people have different idols in their hearts that get in the way of undivided devotion to God. But for the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. For him, it was too difficult to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind, because he loved his possessions too much. They were more important to him than God was. The kingdom of heaven is just like any other kingdom. There can never be two kings on the throne. Matthew 6:24. says, says no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The same applies to whatever may be getting in the way of loving God with all your heart. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's the promise of status and prestige, maybe it's an unhealthy relationship that might be getting in the way of wholehearted service to God. Maybe it's fear the fear of letting go of complete control over your life, or the fear that God might ask you to do something you don't feel ready for. It could even be your call to ministry that has so consumed your life that you've lost track of why you decided to devote your life to God in the first place. Regardless of what it is, what Jesus said to the rich young ruler applies also to us. If you want to be complete, if you want to feel whole, Let go of whatever is in the way and submit yourself fully to Christ. God doesn't promise us riches or power or status, nor does he promise us an easy life without worries or problems or troubles, but he does promise us peace and completeness. Go, he says, give up whatever stands between you and me and follow me with all your heart. After the young man goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, Jesus takes the opportunity to reflect on what just happened with the disciples. Read with me again verses 23 to 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The disciples are left wondering, what just happened? Why, according to what Jesus said, was it so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? We already know that the story is not actually about wealth or possessions in and of itself. It is true that sometimes the more we have, the more we are tempted to feel self-sufficient rather than depending on God. But regardless of our possessions, self-sufficiency is a temptation for everyone. But the heart of the problem was that the young man was unwilling to put God first and give up the idols in his heart. But the disciples still did not understand They still thought that worldly wealth and prestige meant that God had blessed a person and that surely they were deserving of such blessings. If such a wealthy, important, blessed person was unable to enter the kingdom of God, who then, they ask, can be saved? It seems impossible to them. Jesus then brings home the lesson he is trying to teach the disciples. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. No kind of human effort or activity or achievement will ever be capable of securing someone's place in the kingdom of God. It is impossible for a rich man, or any person for that matter, to be saved on his or her own. But God is not limited as we humans are. Salvation depends entirely on the action of God. It is only through his power that our hearts can be transformed to love God, love others, and obey his commandments out of love. It is only through the power of God that we can can surrender all our competing definitions of treasure, all of the idols in our hearts, and wholeheartedly place him first in our lives. And it is only through the power of God that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. With man, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. The story of the rich young ruler has a sad ending. He wasn't willing to give up the one thing in his life that was standing in the way of undivided loyalty to God. Had he done so, he would have found real peace. He would have learned what it means to feel truly complete and to live with the assurance that he has a place in the kingdom of God. But Jesus tells a parable that could provide us with an alternate ending. In Matthew 13, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In this parable, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a treasure so great that when a man finds it, he is so filled with joy that he doesn't hesitate to sell everything that he has to buy the fields where the treasure is hidden. Notice the contrast to the rich young ruler. Instead of going away sorrowful because the field is too expensive or the treasure is buried too deep or the treasure is too heavy for him to lift on his own, he is so overjoyed that he is willing to give up everything in order to possess it. That is how much he valued the kingdom of heaven. It is this willingness that God expects from us, the willingness to place him above everything else in our lives, the willingness to love him with all our heart and soul and mind. If after that we find that the field is expensive, he will help us find the means to buy it. If the treasure is too heavy uh, for us to lift up on our own, he will share the burden with us. But if we are willing to follow Jesus with all our hearts to put him above everything else, we will experience that same joy that the man in the parable experienced when he discovered the greatest treasure of all.